Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Amazon and organized labor. So Richard, last week we had this closely watched vote amongst Amazon employees in Bessemer, Alabama, closely watched in part because it would have been a a very big deal had this succeeded. Amazon is now the second largest private employer in the United States behind Walmart. But not only did this vote to unionize go down to defeat, it went down resoundingly. Over 70% of the employees voting against unionization. And there have been attempts to say that Amazon put its thumb on the scale here. Uh, They don't really seem to be getting much traction, just partially because the results were so lopsided. Let's start with the top line here, Richard. What's your reaction to the outcome of this vote? Well, I was not surprised. Um, I think the most important thing to understand is to abstract yourself first from the particulars to look at the basic shape of American labor unionization. Uh, You try to organize the Bessemer plant, uh, and whatever it is that they do there, Amazon, they do it at 20 other locations. It is well understood without anybody saying a word that you can shift work back and forth between various locations. And so if this organization becomes too expensive to operate uh, because of its work rules or anything else, these workers will suffer and other places will build up. Um, The alternative is to try to figure out how you can organize a nationwide drive for all workers in a particular category at Amazon, but the geographical differences make it impossible to have a single union work on such questions as wages, which will vary by locations, benefits, compliance with state law, and all those other things. And so you have to go local, at which point you will lose by way of erosion. If you try to go national, you won't be able to pull it off or to do anything sensible. Uh, The other thing about a place like Amazon is that they have to have very strong seasonal preferences one way or another. They hire uh, perhaps during peak seasons like Christmas and then they let people go during the winter. Uh, This is perfectly compatible with the gig economy because there are many workers who only want to work part-time now, particularly people who are over 65 or in other sense. Uh, So Amazon sort of owns its market. But the moment you have a variation in the level of workers at a given plant over the year, it's hard to know which time you pick in order to run the election. If you get everybody in, the part-timers may be very suspicious. If you have only the full-timers there, uh, basically they're going to alienate the part-timers when they try to come in. Amazon, I think, has a very strong interest in trying to make sure that this does not happen. Well, what about the workers? Uh, The first thing to understand about this is that you are never allowed under labor law uh, to make an offer to increase the salary of your workers when there is an organization drive on the table. That is deemed to be coercive. And firms have understood that. So the strategy that you have when you're trying to deal with unionization is you deal with it long before any union shows on the scene. And that includes giving a wage scale which is sufficiently attractive that it becomes highly unlikely that a union could come in and better it, um, better it enough to justify the cost, the uncertainty, the risk of strike and of lost jobs and so forth. And so these workers are smart. Uh, They take into account 
account volatility and they decide if they're earning two, maybe even more times the minimum wage, if they think the company is growing and there are opportunities for promotion, uh, they think being safe is better than being high risk. And what happens, therefore, is they stay away from the union. Uh, the result here was lopsided, but I've seen other recent elections in which you've had similar votes. Uh, it turns out that what unions offer, people don't want to buy. And that's the simplest explanation as to why this thing came out the way it did. And it's the simplest explanation why efforts to try to salvage the union position through litigation after the defeat are going to go nowhere. In the weeks preceding this vote, you had an unusual display from the White House. President Biden actually recording a video in which he supported the push for unionization pretty much directly. He didn't mention Amazon explicitly, but he talked about Alabama. It's clear what he meant by it. That's not generally something you see, even from progressive presidents, them getting involved that directly in these kinds of cases. Uh, put aside even the merits for a moment, just in terms of the role of the president, was that an appropriate step for Joe Biden to take? Well, I think it's a very risky step for him to take, but it's perfectly consistent with everything else that he has said. Uh, when you look back to Barack Obama, he was certainly sympathetic with many union causes. And I can still recall when the Employer Free Choice Act, so-called, was on the table when he first came in office, the position that he told everybody else was, if you get it through, I will sign it. But what he didn't say is, I'm going to push very hard to get it through. And at that point, the filibuster held, and it turned out that the act, though repeatedly introduced, uh, went nowhere. In this particular case, Biden is, in fact, somebody who proudly announces himself as a union man all the way through. And what he does in order to make good on that commitment is to try and persuade the workers to join unions so that he could keep his promise to organize labor. Uh, the reason why this turns out to be somewhat tricky is that it's very far from clear as to how popular organized labor is with the vast run of Americans. If you look at the private sector, the level of unionization that takes place in the United States is around 6%. It turns out that if you look at the way in which wages have moved, they've done better under the Trump administration than they did under the Obama administration because greater freedom and greater investment tends to raise wages. Uh, so there are going to be very many people who, have, having seen the way things went under the previous administration, are basically going to be very reluctant to go back to a kind of a strategy that seemed to work in the 1930s when you were trying to organize uh, General Motors of Ford. I don't think there's a structure out there today that will allow this to happen. Amazon is in a highly competitive market. Its basic raison d'etre is low prices. That's not consistent with monopoly rigidities and one form or another. They're going to fight it. The workers are going to understand that the company has thrived because it's followed their practices, and they're not going to be able to persuade them uh, to take this higher-risk alternative under the circumstances. So I think, in effect, uh, uh, unless you have really major changes in the law, and even then I'm doubtful, uh, unionization in the private sector is not going to work for structural reasons. Importation and greater competition is part of it. If there are no rents that can be attracted to the business, and then there are no rents to be shared with the labor unions. So this is not a big three in automotive. This is not a situation where Ma Bell has a complete monopoly. After it broke up, the communications workers could do 
absolutely nothing with the divided companies who are competitive one another. So I think it's a long-term structural issue. I think it's a very welcome result. The only way it will be changed is by massive legislation. But I think there's enough resentment to unions that even the Democratic Party with its slender majorities in both houses won't be able to get something through, like, for example, a repeal of the state option to adopt right-to-work laws. This is where I was going to take you next, or at least a variation on that. Marty Walsh, who's President Biden's labor secretary, said that he was disappointed by the outcome in Alabama, but he thinks that the real solution for labor is something called the PRO Act that was originally introduced as standalone legislation in Congress. It's now being bundled into the infrastructure package because <laughs> what isn't? <laughs> there are. I'm against the PRO Act without even knowing what it's for. Well, we can go through. There are a bunch of provisions in this law probably worth talking about, but let's just focus the two that are probably most salient. One, it would allow unions to collect dues from workers who choose to opt out in right-to-work states. Two, it would prohibit companies that are facing a drive to organize a union from holding mandatory meetings where they could present their case for why employees shouldn't unionize. Those kinds of meetings were a point of controversy in the Amazon case. What's your reaction to those kinds of proposals? Well, I mean, the question about being able to extract dues from non-members, they're going to run into serious difficulties with what happened in the Janus case involving public unions. Uh, Even in the private sector, if it's a federal government command that says that we can collect them from non-members, whether they want to pay or not, uh, then in effect it is a form of state action and it will be challenged as a form of coerced speech uh, or compelled speech. And I think it's likely to go down the tubes and uh, I don't really think that they're going to have a much success with that. And what was the second one again? It was um, The second provision would be to keep companies that are facing these kind of drives from holding oh, mandatory the, the no meetings. no mandatory yeah. meeting. Uh, again, I mean, this is going to be extremely difficult to do. First of all, the companies have so many ways in which they communicate with workers that it's not clear that stopping formal meetings is going to stop the practice. Uh, but again, if you start dealing with the way in which labor unions have run, uh, the basic principles of freedom of speech have already been truncated against the firm. If you believed in freedom of speech in the full-blooded sense, uh, what you would be allowed to do is to say anything you wanted to your workers uh, to persuade them not not to join the union and allowed to make any lawful threat. Like you could say, if you guys decide that you want to join a union, we're going to fire a lot of you. And what we're going to do is to employ different kinds of laborers and greater machines. You're not going to get anything out of us. We're going to leave town. The current law says that you cannot impose a threat or promise a benefit. So what you're left for doing is making predictions of what will happen. And grammarians take over the process. And what they tell you as a firm is that you can say, look at what happened in this other case when unionization took place and the following thing happened to the number of workers that were hired and then leave it to them to figure out that that's going to be a prediction of what's going to happen here. And employers essentially today are so well counseled that they don't slip up on going beyond the line of prediction to improper advocacy. And if already you restricted employers, I think it's going to be a hard sell to get a court to say, uh, particularly with somebody like Justice Alito around, uh, not only 
are they going to be barred from saying things that everybody else can say? They're going to be barred from saying anything at all, while unions are going to have the full run of a situation. Uh, marketplace competition and ideas is not likely to happen if only one side is going to be allowed to speak. It's also, I think, a real mark of desperation. Uh, that is, in the larger political debate, why is it that they are taking this particular position? It's because they don't have any confidence that they could actually sell their position to these workers. Workers. Remember, unions have all sorts of ways of getting access to people, um, both on the premises. They're allowed to go under many circumstances, although there are limitations. They could do so at homes. They could recruit them off of lists of one kind or another. Uh, the real problem that they face is they don't have anything to offer, uh, which promises them a gain in wages and benefits and other terms and conditions of employment, which are greater than the cost of union membership on the one hand and the risk of toppling the apple cart on the other. That fundamental equation remains. Uh, moving these particular things one way or another will create really sour relationships. It will also induce firms to make other adjustments which will make it harder for unions to come in. Uh, they will change the nature of their plant. They will change the nature of their equipment. They will change their job description descriptions and so forth, all with an effort to make sure that there's not a block of similarly situated workers for whom this is an advantage. Uh, one of the reasons why unions just can't work in the tech sector is these jobs are so volatile, they're so distinct and so unique. Every worker is different from every other worker. Unionization doesn't work. Uh, Amazon packing plant, you get enough of the homogeneity that it might work, although as I've mentioned to you, turnover rates and intensity of utilization rates make this more complicated. So I think even if they got it, it may make a little difference. Let me just mention one thing by way of comparison. Many years ago, I went to New Zealand and I worked in an effort to get what we called an Employer Contracts Act, an Employee Contracts Act, to free up labor relations. And we didn't get everything we wanted, uh, but the union penetration in that market, when we got some degree of freedom in there, went from about 55 or 60 percent of the market to about 20 percent in a couple of years. Uh, the Labor Party comes back in, they take out the word contracts, which is too freedom-oriented, put in the word relations, which is like the National Labor Relations Act, a relationship is something that we could regulate. And interestingly enough, they could not get union membership to go back up again. Once people are free of unions, they actually prefer the uh, prerogatives of freedom uh, to what they regard as the heavy obligations of union membership. And every time you know that there's going to be a turnover in a particular plant, no worker is going to invest a lot of current labor today if they know they're going to be leaving the job tomorrow. You mentioned the specifics of a, a location like an Amazon processing plant. There's an argument that you're starting to hear emerge now that companies like Amazon, whose business model really rely on trying to maximize efficiency at every point in the system, are, are particularly good examples of why we still need unions. So I, I give you this excerpt from a piece. This is by Greg Bensinger in the New York Times. Quote, Catherine Fisk, a labor and employment law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, said that recently failed pro-labor drives portend a future in which worker protections are whittled away in service of on-demand workplaces that can be dialed up or down to match consumers' needs. Americans, workers, and employers alike may have difficulty grasping the size and scope of the seismic changes that will soon be upon them. The combination of better technology and its unfettered deployment means that more and more inefficiencies will be wrung out of the workplace, even if that's the extra minute or two spent in the bathroom, close quote. So the argument here is that these processes will 
necessarily be dehumanizing because their entire purpose is to wring all of the slack out of the system and that that's a hard thing to do with actual flesh and blood human beings. Well, what's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, she clearly has to be wrong with respect to Amazon. They know what their bathroom breaks are, no matter what the employer tries to tell them otherwise, and they've decided it's 70% to stay. It's also clear that not only Amazon prizes flexibility, but workers prize flexibility as well. That's why AB5 and Cal California, which tried to put this kind of a noose around uh, the gig economy, was met with such a fierce reaction and was outvoted. Uh, workers prize their degree of freedom. And one of the things that happened when you do this, which she did not bother to mention, is that if you're hiring in seasonal basis, uh, it doesn't follow that any employee who would have been employed in the last cycle has to decide that they're going to work in this particular cycle. Uh, that is, if it turns out these are spot contracts, both the laborers and the employer at risk, which which means that you're going to get some kind of equilibrium. Then if you start looking at the wages that are given, uh, it turns out that Amazon, given its efficiency, paradoxically could pay a higher wage than other firms because they get more out of their workers. Uh, the strategy for making money is never to say that whenever there's a surplus that's created by some joint management labor improvement, that all the gain goes to the firm. Uh, you're going to keep a lot more workers, have a lot better morale if, in fact, you divide the game. And what she would have to do is to show that there was some really pervasive sense of gloom at that particular plan. I don't think you could come close to doing that. And the same thing is true of the gig economy. I mean, you look around and you ask these people, they say, what are you doing? They say, well, I'm a graduate student and I can only work on Thursday nights and Saturday afternoons. And you know, that's when I pick up my Lyft or my Uber thing and that's when I'm going to do it. And if somebody wanted me to work full time, I couldn't do it, but I like the supplement. There are people who retire that I get bored sitting around at home. My wife wants me to take a job. So I'm going to do this thing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You could pick it up and you could drop it off. You can't have that degree of flexibility at Amazon. Uh, but when you're a firm and you have to recruit 500,000 or more people, giving them terms that nobody wants is not the way in which you succeed. So what she does is she still has the old exploitation model, which mars everything that she tends to write. Thinking of contracts as win for the firm and loses for everything else. You don't make money by making other people miserable. You make money by making them happy so that the two of you together can do something which neither of you can do alone. And that's the situation that there. So I regard this as Cassandra on stilts completely incorrect. Um, if you're anybody who works in personnel, whatever you call today, management, people, and so forth, you are fully aware of these kinds of situations. You keep your ear to the ground, and the first thing that you always are looking for is if you could find a way to give an amenity that costs X to you, but generates X plus Y to you, you will do it, and you won't wait for workers to ask for it. I mean, my brief career as a dean, I spent half my time trying to figure out ways that I could help my employees uh, with their daily jobs uh, so that we could bring more efficiency out of the system, which would allow for rages to take place. And I could still recall, Troy, I mean, it's a kind of a personal note. Uh, we had done very well, and then we had to fix wages for the next year. And we were in a position where we could offer 5 or 6% wages. We then come to all the union people, and there's a big X through the line. Uh, they had a long-term collective bargaining agreement, and what we were going to pay them was less than the wages that we could give by way of increases to all the workers who weren't in the union. It saddened me. Uh, that the union, in effect, not only put a minimum on what happened, but they put a maximum on what happened. And they created all sorts of rigidities, which hurt the very workers who are ostensibly protected by their union membership. 
You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.